Conversations with Andrew and Phil. Mm. I'm your co-host, Phil. And my little preamble to today's episode, <laughs> rather than say something quippy and fun about the film, yeah. I'm just going to give you guys a quick uh, backstory about why this is a special episode. I live in California. Yes. I did, in fact, see today's film, Sorry to Bother You, which is set in Oakland, in Oakland. I saw it. Very I was cool. in the theater, the Grand Lake Theater, and I saw it with the Oakland crowd. Anyway, nice. when you travel through Oakland or any other portion of the East Bay, an aroma will often waft its way into your nostrils. Oh, yeah. And that aroma is straight-up cannabis. <laughs> so... <laughs> Since we live here now where marijuana is legal, I indulged, forgetting that I have this podcast to do. <laughs> Fortunately for us and you, the listeners, the film that we're talking about today is Sorry to Bother You. Mm. Um, and uh, this is the kind of movie, as Andrew is about to allude to, yeah, where it's wacky and creative and symbolic and, and yeah. begs to be interpreted. Yeah, so you're saying that uh, being under the influence might might not be so bad. Well, the the dynamic between a high person and a not high person uh-huh. can be <laughs> problematic. Um, but I'm I'm hoping that we don't have that issue with this film review. Well, I'm Andrew. I'm the other co-host, and I am the not high person in this equation, and. Uh, yeah, uh, I did not see it in Oakland. I saw it in New York City. Uh, well, that's still good, too. In Astoria. And yeah, and for that matter, I mean, you walk around the streets of New York, that scent often wafts its way into your nostrils mm-hmm. uh, quite frequently. Um, pretty much every block. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is not an uncommon thing, uh, despite the fact that it is not, in fact, legal in New York State. That's the difference. That is the big difference. So there are no dispensaries here. Uh, they dispense with them. They they never had them in the first place, so they didn't they have to dispense with, with the idea. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's all I've got to say. That's all I have. Gotcha. Well, well, well told. So um, as I mentioned, the film is uh, "Sorry to Bother You," uh, directed and written by Boots Riley. Uh huh. Um. Before we get into the discussion, uh, this is the trailer, which we're about to share with you. Take a listen. Man, I'm just out here surviving. And what I'm doing right now won't even matter. Oh, baby, baby, it will always matter. You said you fixed that. Get a room. I got a room, mother. Hey, Cash. How much longer I got to wait for my money? God made this land for all of us. Greedy people like you want to hog it to yourself and your family. And- Me and my family? Yeah. Cash is I'm your fucking uncle. I just really need a job. 40 on two. Hey, hello. Uh, Mr. Davidson, cash is green here. Sorry to bother. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm never talking about Will Smith's wife. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. 
As always, we'll be getting that out to you right away. You're doing so good with the voice thing. Holla, 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 holla. Oh, yeah. All right. You're going upstairs, Power Caller. They even have their own elevator. Welcome, Power Caller. I hope you did not masturbate today. We need you sharp and ready to go. I'm full trying to murky, yeah. Don't push you, poppin' like Percocet. Got a hit up, banger ain't surface, yeah. Two-steppin' like the ball, this person, check. I got promoted. I'm a power caller. What do they sell? They're not selling, but we sell it. No, there's no amount of money that'll make me do that. Here's the starting salary. Well, man, I'm gonna have to get me some new suits. Do whatever I wear, no, I'm here to be clear. It is morally emaciated. I can't ride with you. I'm doing something I'm really good at. Cash, I'm gonna make you a proposal. I can see that you want to say no, but I wouldn't do that before you see what I'm offering you. You are awesome. Oh, yeah. All right. Some for the homies and some for me. Hell, yeah. That's right. I've often thought to myself that David Cross has one of the whitest voices <laughs> I've ever heard. He certainly does. As really does Patton use. Oswalt, who is yeah, one of exactly. white voices in this film. Um, so... To dive in, I guess, this, the, the story of Sorry to Bother You mm. concerns uh, Cassius and uh, his girlfriend, Detroit, who are living in Oakland, or as, as Boots Riley has repeatedly said, an alternate present-day version of Oakland. A magical realist version, you might say? Yeah, with a lot of kind of satirical, political billboards. I mean, they're not satirical in the film, but uh, the film presents them as kind of a dystopic vision of where the Bay Area is headed uh, for sure. if things for sure. don't change or where they where they might have been. Yeah. Um, and it's in Oakland. And so Cassius and Detroit share a place to live. And uh, Cassius's uncle, by Terry Crews, uh, is owning is the owner of the house, but he's about to lose it in case he can come up with, uh, you know, mortgage or rent money that he just doesn't have at the moment. Mm-hmm. And so Cassius has to get a job to be able to pay off his debts, and he just he'll take anything. So he gets he becomes a telemarketer in a San Francisco call center, mm-hmm. and uh, he's not having any success. So as you probably know, if you've seen the trailers to this film, he then gets some advice from an elder coworker in Danny Glover's best performance in years. Uh, <laughs> Where he plays a, a longtime telemarketer, he gives uh, Cassius the advice to use his white voice when he's speaking with these strangers because it's less threatening and more likable, basically, mm-hmm. to these mm-hmm. white ears. So he follows the guy's advice and it leads him into this very scary, surreal world of corruption and uh, scheming and, and inhumanity. Yeah. This is a very surreal film, magical realist, as Andrew said. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally love that stuff. And I would say that I would like magical realism even more than surrealism because in magical realism, you can experience something and just take it for face value, take it for the, the magical aspects. Uh, or if you do want to analyze it, mm-hmm. there's usually something worth learning by doing that. Sure. 
so it kind of satisfies both the kind of childlike primal urge to to be in a magical land but then if you you know want to delve deeper there's there's interesting stuff to kind of parse through often dealing with satire or irony what uh because you say that you've enjoyed this sort of thing before what would you what kind of category would you place this in what would you put it beside in terms of films that you have seen in the past well the thing that i instantly think of is the latin american tradition in magical sure. realist storytelling yeah um and so i've seen i it, it, off the top of my head it reminds me of i saw this old short film um adapted from a magical realist story i think by marquez where it's mm-hmm. called a, a very old man with enormous wings um Ooh. and uh you know, that's a story about this elderly man who has these magical wings but then again they're not like uh fantasy realistic wings but they are just kind of these handmade uh you know kind of appendages and uh it's funny because i don't remember anything else about the film other than just the imagery of this you know ordinary man juxtaposed with this fantastical uh element sure sure i just uh, that's yeah i just saw the broadway production of angels in america which has Ah. the that play of course has some magical realist elements to it um so i thought a little bit of that about that while i was watching this film yeah Uh, but also other things i mean certainly brazil came to mind repo man for me repo man sure yeah yeah definitely um yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting film now i had gone into this knowing people were making comments like this movie is insane (laughs) um (laughs) But then when I watched it, it's like everything seems so deliberate, so well thought out, mm. so well placed and so allegorical that I just can't call it insane. It just seems completely logical. Yeah, I don't think it's – yeah, people – I also heard the insane descriptor or crazy descriptor uh, applied mm. to this film before I went in to see it. And actually, one of the things that I was disappointed about with this film was that uh, – the the trailer is exciting, right? The trailer is a, a thrilling trailer to watch. I was very excited about this film going into it. And uh, I feel like it's not able to maintain the level of uh, craziness until you kind of get to the further reaches of the film, until you start to get to, towards the climax and kind of things mm-hmm. get really weird. Um, but I, I felt like it... it the pacing wasn't as strong as I thought it was going to be not based on sort of what I had seen or heard prior to going in, but based on kind of the opening moments of the film and the first few things that happen, mm-hmm. it kind of slows down and sags a lot in the middle and then picks up again towards the end. I felt, um, mm-hmm. but I think you're right, Phil, that it, every choice is very deliberate in this movie and it is, it is definitely well thought out. It in some ways reminded me of something like the tin drum. Uh, well, which, I bet Boots Riley would love to hear that comment. I mean, that's, <laughs> uh, that's a, yeah, it, it's, it's high praise for those that love the tin drum. I'm not a fan. <laughs> we have to respect, uh, oh, I res- aspects of the tin drum. Yeah. yeah no, no doubt. I respect the film and it's, it's, it is, I can understand why people love it and why it is so highly regarded. Uh-huh. But, you know, by the time they get to that scene where they're pulling the 
horse head filled with eels out of the ocean and oh just, yeah i remember the, your argument about this the camera just lingers on it for like five minutes and i'm like all right i i it means something i, I don't know what it means but it's it's an allegory i know that much well man oh geez well i think <laughs> so you're drawing a comparison between these two I in think, some ways yeah i mean because that's a very magical realist film as well with yeah, a, with a political I, I, think statement yeah, I was thinking more of like um, like uh, Fanny and Alexander, you know, sure, Bergman's sure. film from the eighties. Um, I love that though. But like, yeah, um, I just feel like I could recalling the tin drum. Yeah, I don't remember if that horse had symbolized anything. I remember the image though; it was a potent image. Yeah, and um, it's funny because I felt like I just really got sorry to bother you in nearly every sense. And, and I was never sure. watching it and thinking like, what does this mean? Um, let me give you guys a little, I made notes after I saw this movie because yeah. I think that, uh, there's a lot of really intelligent, uh, storytelling and, um, and there's a lot of meaning, I think at the heart of this movie. Sure. So I think it's a film about not selling out, remaining true to your friends where you came from and not being seduced by money and power. So um, what's been happening in the Bay Area for, you know, uh, at least 10 or 15 years in a big noticeable way is this kind of emergence of Silicon Valley and and the kind of influx of all these tech people coming in, causing gentrification in the city itself and in the neighboring East Bay. Yeah. And creating uh, the most expensive housing market in the country. Although it got knocked off of its its throne by Brooklyn just this past year. I feel like it's a tussle between those. It two. is. It's, they go back and forth. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so like yeah, so so the uh, the worry free army in this movie, you know, like yeah. this kind of encroaching uh, mass mass employment force, like. And the and Army Hammer's character Steve Lift himself, you know, Steve is lifted off of yeah. what's been going on in this, you know, the Bay Area for a while now, where you're there's huge gentrification, huge income inequality, and the cost of living is going way, way up. It's causing, uh, you know, just kind of bare lots in the city of Oakland Mass to be selling for yeah for like, I mean, these like these like just decrepit houses and the land that they're under are selling for millions of dollars. Yeah. And, um, and yes, of course, Oakland in particular has had a huge homeless problem and they have tent cities throughout the, the town. Yep. Um, and so here you've got this, you know, this world of Cassius and his, his, the guys in his neighborhood. And, uh, when he becomes successful at the, at the, the telemarketing job, then he sort of gets cherry picked and noticed by the guys that worry free and at a critical moment. Well, I guess, I guess he gets promoted at a critical moment for him and his friends. And then he gets further cherry picked at another critical moment. Sort of anytime there's like a major event or crisis in his life, crisis of conscience, where he has to make a decision about who he really is. He mm-hmm. is forced into these seemingly, you know, he's given offers that he can't refuse, basically. Yeah, and 
he's being pulled in one direction by uh, Stephen Yoon's character, yeah. who is who's helping to organize a union at the telemarketers, you know, organization. But I think this this movie is tapping into something that I think a lot of people experience. You know, is this this issue where if you're doing well somewhere, like specifically in the workplace, but you don't want to leave your loved ones behind per se. You know, it's like you kind of have to balance what you want to achieve versus your loyalty to the group. And in this film, like uh, Cassius's buddies, they're like uh, a very political, you know, organization. And uh, while the the pull of politics is strong from them, there's this pull of money, and along with that, the pull of family because he has to Mm -hmm. pay back his uncle, and uh, along with that, the pull of just having to survive. Sure. Yeah, it's it it is. I mean, on on the the bare surface, it's it is that story, right? It's the story of, as you said earlier, uh, selling out versus staying tr- true to who you are. You know, siding with your friends versus versus siding with what is pre- presumably in your best interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what is in your best interest is your relationship with your loved ones more important than money and financial stability the happiness that that can bring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's sort of faced with all of these choices on, on a surface level in the film. But then, as you say, it's very allegorical and it drops into more complex social commentary. And some of it, I think, really works very well. Some of it, I I didn't, I wasn't quite as sold on or maybe... I needed to go back to the film and see see it for a few repeat, repeat viewings to actually understand uh, everything uh-huh. that's happening because I do think it's a dense and layered film. Um, but it's it's interesting because I feel like the movie kind of holds you at arm's length throughout. I I feel like there aren't a lot of committed emotional performances with the exception maybe of Lakeith Stanfield who plays the lead in mm. the film. Uh, and I, and army hammer is great as a creepy sort of Steve jobs stand in. Um, yeah. and, uh, and Tessa Thompson is wonderful as, as his girlfriend, not, uh, not Steve lifts girlfriend, but, uh, Cassius's girlfriend. Yeah. Detroit. Um, Jermaine Fowler is very funny in the film. Steven Yeun is is excellent. Uh, it's great to see him doing something that is not The Walking Dead. <laughs> <laughs> I he he's one of those people in The Walking Dead that I I always I'm I'm so glad he's free of it because that movie is I mean that show is mm-hmm. has always been so close to being a great show, but it never makes that turn. <laughs> Never quite. Yeah. It's just it, it like just maintains itself at total mediocrity, and it's always like there's the like the talent is here, and all they got to do is make some smart decisions, and this could be a truly great show, and it never quite gets there. So I'm glad that he's going on and doing interesting work like this. Um, as you it'll said, be, Danny Glover's be... great. Like they're all good performances, but they also right. seem totally detached from reality and part of that is the unreality of the world the magical realism of this yeah, world the, 
and the words you know coming out of their mouths specifically are well are, yeah. if you try to do that in utter like sincerity and earnestness i mean emotionally that would be pretty like contra- contradictory sure sure and i i get that but then i it also i think is i think that contributes to it kind of sagging in the middle of the film i feel like that contributes to the that sense of slowdown that i felt where yeah. it i just i i wasn't as involved in what was going on um until it went it went totally insane at which point it was interesting if only to see where this movie was going to take us yeah and it sure took us some places yeah um yeah man i think that one of my favorite parts early on uh before things get insane as you say mm-hmm. is is uh the kind of like cautionary tale that I would expect to see from like an old Italian neorealist film, mm. you know, about people like a Vittorio De Sica film about somebody just trying to make a living, you know, and, uh, and not die and be dignified. And, sure. um, the scene when Cassius becomes a power caller and he's going to work and he's kind of walking past the picket line and all his buddies are crestfallen about his turning their backs on him. And, scab. Um, yeah. And, as he's walking through, like he confronts some people who are harassing him, and he's like, "Hey, man, like I did, I got here all by myself. I did this all on my own. Like, yeah. you know, like, like let me hold on to what I earned." And then, right after he says that, it cuts to the shot of Danny Glover just like <laughs> shaking his head, like looking down, because he was the one who gave him the white voice idea. Yeah, yeah. And it makes you wonder how many other people he's given the white voice, white voice idea to. Sure. Over the years, and why does he do it? And how many of them have either gone risen or just say the same or not ever gotten there? I mean, they do say it multiple times in the film that Cassius is a natural at it or the best that has ever been well, there. Well, yeah, it's interesting because they keep saying stick to the script and they even abbreviate it as T-T-S, mm-hmm. you know, and that's like the mantra of the company and then therefore like the mantra of the movie up to that point. And I worked as a market researcher, so we weren't calling people to sell stuff to, but we were calling people and trying to get them to fill out surveys. Sure. So it's the same same punishment, basically, <laughs> about how you know nobody wants to talk to you, of course. Of course. Um, but um, yeah, so it's like, and this is this is where the part that I'm high comes in. <laughs> <laughs> Losing track. Losing track. Losing track. Um, but what I was, what I was saying was, it's like, he doesn't stick to the script. No. But he still manages to excel. And here's Danny Glover, you know, encouraging him to take this rash, drastic path, you know, like use, use this, this is the secret. If you really want to make some money here. Well, so he's kind of helping things along in some way. Do you see it that way or do you see it as like in a sense, I saw a stick to the script as sort of code for be as white and inoffensive as you possibly can. Right. That's how you will succeed. That's sort of like the subtext, right, is by sort of sublimating yourself into this culture you will then become successful. So the whiter he sounds, mm-hmm. 
the more successful he becomes, right? And I think that that, I think that sticking to the script is exactly that. I, I think it isn't until he gets in too deep, quote unquote. Um, I don't know why I say quote unquote. <laughs> he really gets in too <laughs> deep. Uh, <laughs> Uh, with uh, with Steve Lift and and his crazy party and all the insanity that follows that, uh, I feel like he he really does stick to the script. The script being the script that white America has written for him, right? Sure. When, when he is just being himself, which he is at the beginning of the film, he he doesn't have much. He his bedroom is the garage in his uncle's house. Right where the door pops open when he's in bed with his girlfriend, mm-hmm. right, and you know he's struggling with everybody else. He's there uh, on the the picket line. You know he's or he 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 makes he protests mm-hmm. begrudgingly, perhaps, but protests nevertheless. And it's only when he totally sticks to the script, so to speak, that he is successful. So in that yeah. sense, they're actually right. Depressing as that may be. And it is. <laughs> I mean, this I mean, this movie is, it's very, it's very pointed, right? It's very sharp. And it's yeah. uh, merciless in, in, in a, a way. I mean, it certainly takes aim at tech companies and the worship of, uh, technocrats and and sort of millionaires and billionaires yeah uh, it it sort of takes aim at that it takes aim at consumer culture it takes aim at our certainly the the racial dynamics the class dynamics that are in place in america that are kind of deep-seated in our dna um and what mm-hmm. a person has to do to to escape that kind of a thing yeah and um well, I really want to. I just, I almost gave a spoiler alert because <laughs> there's this film makes some very interesting and unexpected developments in the yes. last half, last act sort of uh, vicinity, and I feel like uh, there's definitely a lot to parse through there. But you know what? I think I'm going to hold off because yeah, I, don't, I know I... that there are people here listening who probably aren't sure if they want to see this or not, and I want them to know that yes, you really should see it, and you shouldn't have it spoiled before you can really experience it yourself. Yeah, I, I'm i not as enthusiastic about the film as you are. I think that it does have its problems, as I've mentioned. Uh, I think it's got plenty of uh, pacing issues and uh, kind of mm. sags in the middle of the film. But I think the commentary in the film is on point. I mm-hmm. think that the performances are very good uh, by all of the people in it. Uh, I'm liking Lakeith Stanfield more and more with every film that I see him in. Uh, yeah. I'm liking Tessa Thompson more and more with every film I see her in. Uh, I've loved Danny Glover for a very long time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that pratfall that he does in the Royal Tenenbaums is still one of my favorite things yeah, that a I've number one. ever seen. Uh, <laughs> it's honestly one of my favorite. That and moments. the broken chair from Punch Drunk Love that Luis oh, uh, Guzman sits on. Those are those are two complete throwaway things that nobody thinks about when they think about either of those films. That are probably my favorite moment in each of those films. <laughs> Oh God, Luis the <laughs> Luis Guzman one in Punch Drunk Love is the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah, I mean, like it's it's a it's it's a very fascinating film, and I feel like I'm going to have to return to it at some point. Probably not right away. I want to let it simmer for a little bit, but I'll probably return to it at some point to to kind of wrap my brain around it a little bit more because I think that there is some depth to the allegory. Um, mm-hmm. Just uh, you just kind of have to get through the 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 lagging parts. So Boots Riley has been a hip hop artist in Oakland for yeah. a few decades now. And yeah. uh, the soundtrack to this movie is a collection of songs that he composed with his group, the coup. Yeah, it's great. And it's, yeah, it's some really great kind of like kind of reminds me of that, like uh hybrid of hard rock and rap that we used to be popular, <laughs> like when we were younger and uh, yeah. except, except in a more contemporary way, this is much better. Yes. Yeah, um, bar but, to bar. <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> God no, um, but like there's like there's this great moment where like you know how much I love music and movies. Uh, mm-hmm. Cassius is like driving down the street in Oakland in his kind of like patchwork co- collage of a car, and like there's this like crunchy like Led Zeppelin riff like yeah, thing, yeah. just kind of like like as he's driving around. Mm-hmm. That was like a really good kind of syncresis of of music and visuals and um so he was a boots, boots riley was a, a hip-hop artist who studied filmmaking at san francisco state oh wow and uh yeah so he filmed this of course in oakland he didn't yeah. he didn't do it in hollywood i've looked at his twitter page and it says that he's in oakland which is very far from la yes indeed um so i really respect this film and i was delighted to be able to see it actually in oakland and yeah. the audience, I would say the audience, uh, without a doubt, they all respected the film. Uh, there were people who were laughing, a handful of people who laughed at every joke, even the really dark ones. But then there were more people who kind of laughed at the more obvious humor sure. throughout. So I, I, it was hard to gauge whether people were silent because they were thinking like, oh, yeah, this is the Oakland I know. Or they're thinking like, this is not the Oakland I know. <laughs> For in in my audience, it took people a long time to warm up to it. Um, by I would say maybe about halfway through the film, people were laughing at the jokes, but there'd been a lot of funny stuff that had come before. Uh, but it took them a while to warm into it, and then I felt like everybody got very uncomfortable because it gets the movie gets very uncomfortable, uh, and the the laughs kind of came to a halt for the most part. Um, also in my audience, we had four teenagers come walking into the movie about 15 minutes before the end, sit down like towards the front of the auditorium and start talking and like texting on their phones and playing games and stuff. It was the, it was so strange. Uh, were they, were they, uh, sorry to bother you. Hey, oh, there it is. That's I, I think that does. I think that was a, that was our. Rim shot, <laughs> Yeah, well, um, I really just got a big kick out of how bold and, and off the wall sure. this vision is. Um, one of my friends from high school, actually, back in North Carolina, uh, she's uh, friends with Boots Riley, and she says that he has been, quote-unquote, dreaming up this film for a very long time. Oh, wow. So it goes to show that... Uh, this has been going on for a while. This is not some kind of impulsive 
surreal vision, but this is something that he's thought about and lived with a long time. Well, and I think that's clear. I mean, as you said earlier, mm-hmm. the film looks, it's deliberate. It, everything feels like it was a decision that was made for a reason. Yeah. Um, it does not feel arbitrary in any, any way. Um, yeah. I, I would say it's definitely an interesting film. It's definitely worth checking out. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, it's, you probably haven't seen anything else quite like it. I think not. Yeah. Um, uh, this movie is getting a lot of buzz, a lot of buzz for Boots Riley, a lot of buzz for the cast and also for the future of this kind of subgenre of kind of like magical realism that, yeah. uh, is told through an African-American perspective. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, this is also another film that kind of celebrates the city of Oakland coming after, um, Black Panther and mm-hmm. along with uh, Blind Spotting, which is looks really interesting it's too. Supposed to be very good, yeah, with David Diggs. Yeah, like that's actually that was playing in another theater in the uh, yeah same the building here. I was in. Same here. That's one I'm really interested in seeing too. Cool. Yeah. Well, my my bottom line, I thought it was great. I really liked it. Um, I would recommend it heartily, but it is weird. So be prepared. You may not. You may have to adjust your impression of what this movie is about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. But I, um, I think it's an important film. It's important vision to support. I agree with that statement and I am slightly less enthusiastic about the film. Uh, but I still think that it is worth your time and worth seeing. So get out there and see it. Uh, do yourself a favor, see it in the movie theater, even though movie mm-hmm. passes broken. <laughs> if you've got a movie pass subscription, go pay money. That's what I had to do. So yeah, they it. should partner up with Worry Free. <laughs> <laughs> That's our show about Sorry to Bother You. Stay tuned for our next episode. It's going to be a listener's choice. Mm-hmm. Drew is coming back on the program with us, and it's going to be lit. We're going to talk about Naked Lunch. Cronenberg. Or as they say on The Simpsons, I can think of two things wrong with that title. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, we will catch you guys later. We'll see you then.